Welcome to the Pork and Feed the Birds. We record this episode as ever on unceded Indigenous lands. I pay my respects to elders and community, past and present of the lands I recorded on, and um, assert as ever that it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. That's how we like to start proceedings in this house. Hello. Um, you may have seen the US election stuff. You may have noticed it online. I annoy, you know, I annoyed myself at every turn. I posted in that whole insufferably lecturing lefty voice. Yeah, you know, Biden's bad too, you know. Or, yeah, you know, hopefully slightly funnier or more thoughtful than that. But I would annoy myself thinking just leave people to celebrate the ousting of this loser. And then I would post things, you know, having a laugh, laughing at the MAGA people, including the uh, the soon-to-be former president himself of America being insufferable and howling about how reality is not reality. And then I would think to myself, oh, God, you fucking insufferable Biden stan. You know, I just didn't like the sound of my own voice. And, and, and eventually I thought, well, why don't you shut the fuck up? I've now tried to do that. Huge news, I think, for anyone who's been anti-fascist since or before or up to or including 2016 or thereafter, because even though we're not in America, we might be able, and I often do say, let's not forget that we don't live in that country. You know, it's still, we know the flow and effects that the election of someone like that happened, had on, on organised racism and nationalism. Now, I very clearly recall the day that Trump got in on 2016 and going for drinks to commiserate with people who were very shocked about the, the news. And I remember seeing a video of Blair Cottrell and Tom Sewell. They were friends back then. Going out into the city, into Melbourne, they were standing outside Transport Bar and both drunkenly gloating about the victory. And I knew from that moment on that, that we were going to see a local effect here. And we, we did, you know? Um, I think the mainstreaming of their views had some divisive or limiting effects upon the violence of the Patriot movement. Um, I do. I think some of them felt that they didn't need to agitate as violently because their voice was being heard in the most mainstream way. But um, I also think we saw an upscaling of, of, of far-right or nationalist messaging. It became suddenly something that was okay to put on in rockstar, VIP, platinum-ticketed environments. And we saw that. And, and, and I don't think in hindsight that we can disregard the 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 influence of the election of Trump in terms of upscaling uh, nationalism and making it more upmarket because surely if those kinds of messages can be accepted into the the presidency in America um, then, then they can be accepted into a lot of the kinds of premium environments or paid environments and indeed they were so even though we don't live in America um, we we always had to deal with the flow-on effects of that bastard being elected in there. So even though the the future that they face is still riddled with coronavirus, 
um, still, still, you know, they still have to reckon with all of the realities that, that and the, the challenges that Black Lives Matter as an anti-racist movement has posed to 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 the country. And I, I really don't think Biden's a much better place to deal with any of them, or the mainstream Dems. Uh, even though all those things are realities for our comrades in America, it is very nice to see that prick out. Um, I mentioned Tom Sewell earlier. I actually addressed him a fair bit in my upcoming Melbourne Fringe Festival show, White Traitor. Um, and I would love it if you would get a ticket for it. It begins next Monday. I have worked so hard on that show. I'm so happy to have it done and uploaded. It takes the form of a pre-recorded video, yes, but there'll be a small chat thing before, during and after the show, which I'll be moderating. I think that's how it works, in which we can sort of simulate a live environment as best we can, given that there's a bit of a chest bug going around. But I worked really hard on the video. It's a deep dive into occult fascism. I really hope you enjoy the thing. Um, I would love it if you, again, please, please attend. If you're skint, I made the event pay whatever you choose to the degree where you can pay nothing and then pay afterwards or even pay nothing afterwards at all. You know, I wanted that because I just want you to be able to see it. Um, and, and, and I couldn't do it live because of the circumstances of this year, but I worked really hard on it and it would mean a lot to me if you would come along. Come along virtually. Um, so head to the Melbourne Fringe website and search up White Traitor or just go to any of my um, social media pages where I constantly foghorn about the damn thing. I'm speaking to Sarah Steele this week of the Let's Talk About Sex, S-E-C-T-S, podcast which focuses on cults i have fallen in love with that podcast of late because it focuses so much on aussie cults and we you're going to hear this have had a had a fantastic chat about what are the commonalities and the differences between nerding out and doing research into say fringe right-wing extremists or conspiracy movements or cults. We talked about those things, what are the differences. Um, it was really, really cool to hear Sarah, as someone who looks into something outside of the far right, talk about the merits and the considerations surrounding no platforming. Um, just really cool to hear someone think about these things and to sort of compare notes with someone who also does a bit of, you know, as I like to call it, Pokemon hunting of their own. Um, so please check in the show notes after the conversation's done for links to the uh, Let's Talk About Sex podcast um, uh, because, you know, I, I, I absolutely love it and I just wanted to give Sarah the space to talk to me about it and to, to let, let all of our, our neck of the woods know about what she's up to over there because it's some brilliant stuff and there's way more Aussie cults than I ever thought that there was. Why A lot of kooks out there, a lot of rare, rare Pokemon. If you enjoy the conversation, if you enjoy my podcast, if you enjoy any of the things that I do, I would love it if you would chuck a clam or two my way on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Tom It is not more important than the many causes that we talk about on this or any other episode of the podcast, um, but it would help me to survive and to continue to make this videos fringe festival shows god knows what else actual activism all of the other things that i do um so if you have a clam spare but a clam please consider passing that clam to your boy via patreon
I'm now going to shut up so you can listen to Sarah Steele. Sarah Steele of the Let's Talk About Sex podcast. Welcome to my podcast. Hello. Hello. You said sex <laughs> quite well. Um, ABC journos have said it way worse than you. <laughs> I, I imagined listening to your podcast that you um, would have come to curse the name. I think it's funny, but you would have come to curse on occasion the name of your podcast in, say, reaching out to pods, uh, reaching out to cults or or ex-members. Has, has, it, has, it, has it bitten you on the arse sometimes? You know, weirdly enough, it never has. Um I sometimes think the the problem with it is that it makes it seem like it might be quite lighthearted before you come into it as a listener and then you listen yeah. and you're like, oh, this is just all uh, trauma and a darkness. I'm such a fan of the, the, the breadth and depth of the research that you do on there. You are right. I, I think I, I imagined, say, one of those sort of light, airy, fairy panel type podcasts before I started to listen yeah. until I realised that each episode is a huge project of digging into to, to cults and what have you. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's, yeah, each episode is its own research project on a different cult and then, you know, start again next month. So when did you begin the podcast, Let's Talk About Sex? How, 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 how and why did it begin for you? You know, honestly, I was I was interested in learning more about cults and I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I looked for one and at the time there wasn't one and now there are loads, but there wasn't one at the time and I just thought... Uh, maybe I could give it a go. And it was just uh, basic audacity. And, you know, once I started it really, it took on a whole different um, shape and form. Like it's changed quite a bit to the first few episodes. And that was because yeah. the more it went on, the more I started speaking to ex-members directly and the more people started reaching out to me. And that made kind of a different um a different motivation, I suppose. It became really about uh, providing a platform for those stories because a lot of the time the only avenues that these people were getting to tell their stories were quite sensationalist, if any. How has it felt sort of gradually becoming more, I suppose, of an active agent in 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 not the cult, I was going to say the cult community. That's not quite <laughs> the right way of describing it. But in terms of looking into cults, now you're known or your podcast is known as somewhere, I suppose, that ex-cult members can come to to tell their stories. Have you noticed that shift over time? Like are you now um, sought out by a great many people in that respect? I've started receiving a lot more uh, approaches from people. I rarely have to reach out to people anymore unless I'm, you know, obviously focusing on a particular group where I haven't got an interview subject. But a lot of the episodes these days are driven by people reaching out to me and wanting to tell their story. So that's been a huge difference. And I think that the other difference is probably just in my own sense of motivation in making the show, it just, it's it's become a whole different um you know, it's got a whole new driving force that it didn't have at the beginning, which is all about just realising how many of these groups are out there, how much damage they're doing and how little people realise that that's the case as well, you know. I've had a few revelatory moments, you know, through listening to your podcast um, where ex-members will talk about the way that other people address their experiences with them 
in, in you know for example there was one ex member who was saying that they that it really hurt them to hear other people describing their experiences with something that was really traumatic for them as fascinating for example mm-hmm. you know and, and that made me think about myself because i you know my, i suppose my original interest in, in in your podcast as it is with myself with looking at say fringe groups and extremists and what have you it's that i i find it interesting but then the more you hear about these stories, regardless of who they're from, but the people who've had experience in these things, it's anything but fascinating for those people, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's the exact journey that I went on. And I would say that's how, like I started the project out of a fascination and it's become much more of a, I guess, almost like a social justice kind of motivation. It's like in demonstrating each of these stories and how they kind of replicate the same dynamics across societies, across culture, across the world. It is, it is fascinating. It's inherently fascinating. Human behavior is fascinating, but yeah, absolutely to these people, it's, it's trauma, it's PTSD, it's things that will affect the rest of their lives. Sarah, when I, say I want to, um, Say I want to begin a, a cult and ultimately in order to be featured on your podcast, um, you, you've, um, what, what, what steps would I have to undertake? You have a fairly rigid criteria or a very specific criteria for what, um, uh, you know, what a cult actually is in order to be, you know, included in your episodes. What am I going to have to make my budding cult in order to be um, featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk About Sex? Well, Tom, you're a very charismatic individual, so you've got a head start there. Um, Thanks, Sarah. I'm not sure on the the sociopathic narcissism elements, though. You might have have a little bit of work to go. And I would say, oh, you've got to get to know me. You got to get to know <laughs> me first. Time. The yeah, the criteria that I came up with it was um it was very much about defining how I was going to approach the the podcast as a project because you know, the initial research made it really clear that the term cult is very nebulous and it doesn't, it's hard to pin down and define. And so different experts use different criteria. You know, a lot of the checkpoints are kind of like 11 points long or whatever. And I just kind of wanted to boil down to what I was going to be looking at. But even Mm. so, you know, I often think about revisiting those three points because particularly, um, a lot of the people I follow are, are talking about how QAnon, for instance, is a cult and it doesn't have a leader as such. And I yeah. still really believe that for a cult to be a cult, by the definition I'm using for the show at least, and I would always defer to other people on this because I, I don't see myself as an expert as such, although I've spoken to a lot of people and done a lot of work in the area. But, you know, I do I do see it as there has to be this leader who is telling people how to live their lives and really kind of... Um, influencing their day-to-day and it's a, it's a weird thing with something like QAnon it's like they're not being told what to do day-to-day but they are kind of indoctrinating and radicalizing themselves. I almost view QAnon as almost a I suppose a potential improvement upon the cult formula because <laughs> you've got you've got a, an open source uh, theory that allows people to be radicalised, allows people for, to, you know, do some of the other things that I suppose cults feature, like, you know, you're right and everyone else is wrong um, and, and so on and so forth. But um, anyone can step in and be their own leader within that. So so there's a whole ton of people that might be subcult leaders. They're still beholden to this made-up Q figure 
who's not really taking control per se of the Q thing, but you have people like in America, there's a guy called Praying Medic. He's one mm. of the largest QAnon figures. And he has his own mini cult leader thing, mm. but he's in competition with 50 other people. It's open door. You yeah, know, yeah, you or yeah. I could become a QAnon signaler tomorrow and reap all of the benefits. It's, it's, yeah. quite, it's kind of fascinating like that, right? Yeah, totally agree. And those are the people who are really gaining from it. You know, they're the ones who are making the money off the YouTube videos or whatever it is that their their grift is. But mm. it's almost like, yeah, the Q- QAnon becomes the belief system from which the the smaller cults emerge. And that's the same with many religious cults, for instance. They, they emerge from a certain belief system. A lot of these cult leaders, they seem to have gone to all of the same schools, you know. It's... um. There's really? the one I'm looking at. I'm researching the next episode that's going to come out. It's all about a couple of cults that emerged from the female orgasm movement in San Francisco. And oh, wow. it's like I, I was approached by a guy who'd come out of one called One Taste and I was all set up to interview him. And then I got an email from a woman who'd come out of this group called The Welcomed Consensus. And it had come from the exact same place, but, you know, hers was run by a man, his was run by a woman. It's like there's the, they've gone to the same schools, they're doing many of the same things, but they have a very different flavor of cult, depending on what the leader's particular power play is what is important to them as a charismatic narcissist you know can i i, I want to talk about w- w- why certain cults come out in certain ways i do but first of all can you just without spoiling too much of your upcoming so what, what what's the female orgasm movement in san francisco yeah well yeah who knew there was a movement based on the female orgasm <laughs> and this is yeah this is something the show has taught me so <laughs> so regularly is that a cult can come out of any belief system and okay. so this one um there was uh originally a group called Lafayette Morehouse started by this guy and it was like a alternate ways of living kind of you know emerged from the the 60s like a lot of these groups did and it was supposedly researching um you know different ways of being and and different ways of human interaction and this came down to styles of community and um you know polyamory and all of these different things but one thing to emerge from Lafayette Morehouse was um around the orgasm and around the female orgasm which like I think it's fair to say can be fairly neglected across patriarchal societies. So, you know. Yeah, true, fair <laughs> enough, yes. Maybe it's a movement that's needed for some, for many. For, yes. for many. Like there are many merits in, in a lot mm. of the work that they did and, and the people who came yeah. out of these groups attest to this. They completely see, you know, and this is out of all cults really, that they're, they're not these evil groups. People are there for a reason. They're, they're, they're getting something out of it. Yeah, there's an sensible, there's a sales pitch there. There's a functionality to these things or, you know, or a reason you would join in the first place. Yeah, you're taking something that gives people value in some way, but then you're twisting it for your own gain. And so, you know, I think this Lafayette Morehouse, it came up with this kind of, oh, I don't know, sustained orgasmic practice um, for, and it was called uh, the deliberate orgasm and they did these you know these things that got some media coverage about a woman having a three-hour orgasm demonstration stuff and so Mm. both of these particular leaders of these groups that came out of that they attended his courses and then they they formed their own separate groups and so Nicole Daydone who formed One Taste she was very much of the financial MLM model like it was all money and getting people to work for her for free and making millions of bucks and the the guy who um he now he was uh 
he he made the welcome consensus. His name was R.J. Testament, um, and he was much more seemingly much more about the control of people and having lots of women around him and being a total misogynist, as far as I can tell. After having looked at many, many different cults, do you think that the 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 kind of say punishments or restrictions or or, or rules that that say a cult leader will set into place are, are they mirroring their own say past or childhood traumas or experiences on average? I reckon there often is, yeah, and I. I guess I I really do think that if we could, as humans, become a lot better at making sure that children aren't experiencing trauma from their parents and in their upbringings, we could solve a lot of society's problems. But then you do still have the odd person who's emerged from what's seemingly a pretty fine childhood and has still come to be this kind of incapable of experiencing empathy kind of adult who just has to take advantage of others to feel a sense of self-worth. So, I mean, I don't know if you've read Jess Hill's book, See What You Made Me Do, but she, yeah, she talks a lot about um, the coercive control continuum and how domestic violence or domestic abuse relationships are kind of on one end and say totalitarian governments are on the other end and there's cults somewhere in the middle and they're mm. all exhibiting this same behaviour and and there is a gendered element to it. Like most cult leaders I've studied are dudes. There are supposedly more women in cults, which kind of tees up with my experience. Not always the case by any means. I mean, there there are also the opposite is true, but there's a gendered element to it, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, like we've got to look at where is this coming from? Also, what are we valuing in leadership? Like, why is it that this sort of having every answer to everything, black and white thinking, us and their mentality is appealing to people and what can we do to change that? Because if we prize the idea of this um, this this perfect leader with, with trait leadership qualities that in, imbue in them a special significance if they take charge in everything, if we do that as a society and we do, then then we almost set the, set the scene for people who can take advantage of that. And I suppose cults are the epitome of taking advantage of that, aren't they? Well, particularly particularly ones anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And I don't, if it's not abusive in some way, whether it's, you know, emotional abuse or something else, I don't think it's really a cult. Well, you know, Sarah, this is why I needed you, and this is why I need you to join up with this QAnon thing. You know, you want to save the children here. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what QAnon's there for, mate. Um, one of the main reasons I really wanted to speak to you was was because you know I really fell in love with the podcast is because of the amount of uh, addressing you do of cults in Australia. And, and I'd always been keen on finding a single source for that kind of thing, uh, uh, you know, listing. And I, I've, I've, I feel like I've really found it in, in the Let's Talk About Sex podcast. Um, do you, because you've you've done so many. I mean, how, do you know roughly how many cults, Australian cults, you've addressed so far? There's a great deal, isn't there? What have I done now? I've I've done. I'm in my uh, fourth season, and I do eight each season. So it's not a it's not a prolific output in the way of many podcasts being once a week or whatever, but I try and do one a month for eight months of the year. And that's just because of the research involved. But I think I try to get around half of them Australian or it might be like a third Mm. and then, yeah, mix them up quite a bit. Do you think that we have a particularly high proliferation of 
cults comparable to overseas. I mean, I, you know, I, I have found through looking at, say, the sovereign citizen movement that apparently Australia has an, a, an as a extraordinarily high amount of micro nations compared to other places, and I can situate reasons for that. I, I think that there was a, a a culture of like sort of frontiersmen in the the eighteen hundreds following invasion that sort of led to this desire to the, the freemen on the land uh, rhetoric from America ported very easily over to here. And I, I think that's part of the reason why we have many odd little sovereign nations, some of them indigenous in nature, but many actually almost, you know, like a, a deny, like denying of, of indigenous sovereignty. So mm. I think that of, of those kinds of movements, do we have a high amount of cults and, and, and do you think there's any reasons for that? That's that's so interesting about the, the sovereign citizens. I didn't know that. Um, mm. You know, I I, I find it really hard to say because the thing with so many of these cults is that they're so secretive that it's really hard to tell how many of them there are out there. So, I mean, I'm not about to run out of Australian groups anytime soon, that's for sure. So mm-hmm. I would say there, there are a fair number and many more than I would have ever thought when I started, but I was, you know, I didn't have much knowledge about it when I started. And I mean... I discover groups all the time that I've never heard of before. You know, a couple of the groups I've I've looked into was so secretive. Like one of them, you couldn't even Google them when I started. And really? So, yeah, it's just it's kind of impossible to say. But there are plenty. Australia has plenty. And I suppose a a well functioning, active current cult is doing its job properly if you can't find it on Google. It really depends on what kind of a cult it is and what their motivation is because if they if their main motivation is financial for instance they might want to be quite public and you know their their leadership is going to be denying that they're a cult in any way but they're going to want to be bringing more people in and they're like a multi-level marketing type movement and they're going to be selling the courses so they're going to want to be really public it's just the elements that are the most culty are going to be the most secretive but some cults for sure their main priority is to be as secretive as possible and those ones yeah they're doing their job very well if they remain that way Sarah, we talked earlier about becoming a, a more active agent, I suppose, in, in, in researching into cults. And one of the consequences for that for you being that now you get ex-cult members simply, uh, you know, approach you to want to talk about their experience. I imagine that another possible consequence might be, you know, harassment from, from cults. And, you know, I'm interested in that as someone who's experienced a lot of harassment, uh, uh, understandably at times, others not so, from, from the people that I look into, you know, mm-hmm. far right types and what mm-hmm. have you. Have you received harassment or obsession over the cults? Um, do they respond ever to your re- requests to talk to them for an episode? What interaction have you had with actual cults? Look, I, yeah, like when I started the project, I would, I would always reach out for comment and I would never hear back. Um, and more recently I've kind of come to view the project as a a platform for ex-members to speak about their experiences, which, you know, I'll always, um, corroborate with other sources as much as I can. Um, but I also, I think it's important not to platform some of the views of some of these people and, Mm. So I've kind of stopped doing that. Um, and the other thing is like I think that it will happen one day for sure, but a lot of the time the groups I cover, either they're very secretive, like 
the ones we were just talking about and in which case they they don't want to say anything publicly. They're not about to come after me because that's not their modus operandi. It doesn't serve yeah. their interests. Or they've had quite a lot of coverage. So, for instance, um, Universal Medicine, the Australian cult, is a good example. They mm. would have been very difficult to cover before uh, Serge Benhayen had sued Esther Rocket for defamation and lost the case and was, mm. you know, <laughs> or like... Because the discovery process led so much to coming out, is it? Yeah, and that the, that her truth defense was that it was a cult and the judgment essentially agreed with her. So, you yeah. know, yeah, it's fine to call that group a cult now because he went to sue her and, and he was found that to be a cult leader. So, yeah. you know, that sort of means, yeah, I mean, people in those groups, they, they would still go after Esther Rocket, but she did all the hard work there and I was able to just ride her coattails, like all credit to that woman for what she did. Um, and so I think if you went after Scientology, you might be in trouble. There are other groups that, yes, absolutely, like in, in its early days, Nexium, Keith Raniere was always going after people in the courts, like he took Rick Ross through the courts. There are many groups that do that. Yeah. But often by the time I'm covering them, they're well past that stage. And if they're yeah. not, I'm likely to be pretty cautious around it. But I kind of, I have no doubt that one day it will happen. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I haven't yet figured out what I'll do when, the, if and when that day comes. It's so, I'll tell you what, it's so refreshing to hear you talk about you having active considerations around not platforming the views of a cult because you know this is something that's uh, it's not taken for granted and certainly there's enough mainstream media sources who won't do this um, or to, you know the thought never even occurs to them but it's always on my mind doing anti-fascist stuff and looking at far right sources you know you don't you you want to address or to bring people's attention to something whilst at the same time not regarding it as a curiosity, not humanising something mm -hmm. that you know is having a very, you know, is, 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 is abusive or otherwise dangerous or harmful. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I take it as, as, as for granted in, in my world or with the people who look at it, but it's so nice to hear you say that because, I, you know, as you said, there's some of these groups are so abusive, um, you know, and, and horrendous. You know, it, yeah, it, it dawned on me over time and, yeah, because it, originally I was kind of reaching out for comment and, and as the project's gone on it's become much more clear to me and I think it's also, yeah, reading a lot more about um, the, the kinds of work that you do, but also like the way that certain stories are covered by the media, the domestic abuse situations, domestic violence, like all of these things, like the media balance on issues that, I don't know, I have a really big problem with sometimes balance is not where the media says it is. It's like, how, how do you talk about these issues without without the risk of bringing more people into these belief systems, which are highly dangerous, it's by telling the stories of the damage they're doing. And that's what I see as my purpose with the show these days. It's That's what the show is. So it's not, I'll definitely try to portray what the, the groups believe, what their belief system is, what the position of the leader is. But, you know, my my perspective is completely partisan on the sides of the victims and those who are traumatized by coercive control and who have had in many 
many times years of their lives taken away from them and who've come out just so damaged. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I see my position as. Well, I agree with you on the question of like, you know, so mainstream media having uh, having a, a very imperfect sense of balance when it comes to subjects uh, like like cults, for example, or, or other sort of extreme or fringe groups. And, and I suppose that's the thing there yeah, for me is that I would trust you as in you after several years of talking to people and getting a real sense of the impact, um, uh, say, of cults, I would trust you to be able to have a fairly good sense of what balance is and what should and should not be platformed. But there's this sense of, like, even mainstream media, whether it be for, say, far-right fringe groups or for cults or what have you, they would dip in and they don't have any sense of that because they're regarding a subject as a curiosity. But get in there, they'll package something up on the subject, probably unintentionally or otherwise humanise half of these demagogues <laughs> assholes yeah. along the way and then move on, you know. Yeah. That, that can be the danger. Yeah, yeah, and they're talking about how um, the right thing to do is to interview people with these really extreme views which are dangerous views and that at the same time I'm not seeing these like extreme leftists being on these same shows ever. No, oh, no, that's not of interest. No, that's not, there's, no, there's no curiosity in that one, is there? Well, where's your balance? I mean, yeah, it's a it's a strange approach. <laughs> mm, totally, totally. Have you um have you come to uh, do you know otherwise if you've come to gain a reputation among Aussie cults? Do they you know have you have you ever affected say people? Uh, leaving a cult? Has anyone ever messaged you to say, you know what, I, re- I heard your episode and then I left? Have you ever had anything like that? I I haven't. Um, I get messages quite a lot from people who have left, who've heard an episode or who had a, a I don't know, a, a long-term experience within a group and that they have said, I didn't realize what I was a part of until I listened to this episode or this has really helped me make sense of something that happened in my life or um, mm. I was able to play this to my friends and make them understand or my partner and make them understand what I exactly I'd been through, which was a really hard thing to do. I, oh, that must be amazing for them, you know, someone being able to use something like that to tell this story. Uh, those are just those emails and those messages are what really keep me going. It's like that just gives me so much motivation. It really makes everything worth it. You know, all of the all of the hours of my life I'm putting into it, it's absolutely worth it to get one of those emails. It just means the world. But um I kind of I'm not I'm not sure it's ever gonna be a show that someone would listen to while they're still involved and come out because of I think it's only if someone was already on the fence um, or if they've come out for some other reason, it may help to solidify the reasons why they've come to that decision because there can be a pretty um, difficult period at that point in time. And that's something I think about a lot is I think a lot of people think if you come out of a cult, it's like you, you come out and you're in the world again and you have freedom and everything's great. And it's like, not at all. You're rebuilding an entire life. Some people from childhood, hey, for the yeah. first time ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many of these, like there's women I, I speak to who've come out much later in life and, you know, I've spoken to women who didn't even know how to open a bank account. And I don't know how, how do you even begin to make a life when you don't even know 
how do you earn money? Like there's just, it, it blows my mind. Where's and I have your paperwork? How do you go to get paperwork for the first time? It's so daunting. So it's, they're so brave. They're just incredible. These, I just really admire most of the people I speak to are just so incredible. And, um, yeah, and, and then a lot of them, you know, they'll have gone to the police to say, hey, here's what happened to me. And there's no crime because, I mean, we're talking about coercive control laws at the moment, which is really interesting to me, but they're mostly uh, in relation to one-on-one domestic abuse situations. So I think it would still not work in these cases, but, you know, financial abuse is still kind of not really a crime. Like a lot of the things that they've suffered, just not not really a crime. Oh, that's tragic. Do you, Sarah, do you, do you think that there's any, we talked about QAnon earlier, you, you alluded mm. to that and maybe some of the, the similarities or differences between that and then the cults that you'll find yourself looking at with your criteria. Has any other overlap between, you know, far-right groups and, and cults ever popped up on your radar over time? Do you, have you covered any cults that you think have far-right tendencies um, or, or, you know, a trade of members between them or cults that message in a far right way or do, do, do politics not necessarily so often frequently creep into them? Yeah, look, I think um, a lot of these kind of doomsday groups can tend pretty right and I would say there are many overlaps between just general kind of radicalization and cult-like thinking and all of these ways of behavior and conspiracy thinking and all of that stuff like there's so much conspiracy thinking in all of these cults yes um but you know uh, there's a couple of groups I'm looking at that have come from the left as well. So, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I, I've noticed that through listening to your episodes. There seems to be a left leaning messaging very, very frequently. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, some of that might be because I find that personally quite interesting because it's always interesting to find a group that I can see myself becoming involved with much more than one that I'm just kind of, wow, that's a total write-off. How did anyone get involved yeah, in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think about that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I do, I sort of feel like a lot of these, like there's a, a bunch of groups that, that have come out of like very socialist type belief systems. I'm going to be looking at another one of those down the line. Um, but they tend to become pretty insular uh, and much more about the cult of personality of the person who's leading it and just highly, highly controlling. And so I think probably like not that dangerous to the outside world, but then a, a lot of these apocalyptic kind of doomsday cults, they would maybe tend a little more right wing. Um, I remember I got a grab of, um, oh, the, the little pebble, the guy who, uh, he ran the order, order of St. Charbel, mm. um, and he was giving Donald Trump advice on maybe using lasers to build the wall when he was uh, going to build the oh, wall. Oh, yes, I heard. <laughs> I listened to that episode. He's amazing, that one. Yeah, he wanted to – he was starting to do video suggesting that he could use laser – make a wall out of lasers. Is, <laughs> is that right? So you'd be able to – is that lasers – hang on. Was that lasers that would, like, just detect that you're crossing the border or that would, like – Laser beam you to into obliteration. Is it? What, what I don't. Kind of laser? I don't. I don't know if he went into full detail about it. He just uh, invited Donald Trump to give.
give him a call to talk over the possibilities and, um, you know, who knows whether he did or not. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I imagine that Trump didn't take him up on that. No, I don't. So you've spoken to a lot of people that, that, that leave cults, and, you know, and, and we talked before about um, your conversations with ex-cult members and I've thought about this quite frequently listening to Let's Talk About Sex because you have you know, you'll have conversations with, with ex-cult members and about the need to, um, to, to, for them to reintegrate into the world and, you know, how hard it is for them to do that and how much they need sort of, you know, like care and understanding along that process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is different, but I've often thought about how when people leave far-right groups, extremist mm-hmm. groups, um, there are groups that help them. Uh, so Exit Australia, there's a similar group over in England. I'm actually hoping to talk to the Exit Australia guy in a future episode. I mm-hmm. want to reach out to him. But the left, I think the, the greater sort of amorphous left, tends to hesitate with, with, with ex-far-right extremist members. You know, we worry that they're perhaps just about to move back to their old inclinations. I don't want to conflate these two necessarily, but do you think, from your perspective, that maybe we, in terms of looking at ex-far-right extremist members, have anything to learn from how, say, an ex-cultist should be reintegrated into the world? Yeah, it's a really, I, yeah, I think about this a lot as well, and it's a really tricky kind of a subject because you can absolutely understand why um someone who has espoused like hateful racist views should shouldn't be welcomed by a yeah a, a group of people who wants to be safe for those of other races but yep. at the same time yes from the cult perspective for sure a lot of people i've talked to have come out of groups where they've done things that they are very ashamed of in hindsight and they would never have done them if it wasn't for this falling into this belief system which indoctrinated them to such an extent. And so I do believe in rehabilitation and I am an optimist who likes to think the best of people, but you know, I do think it's a really it's a really tricky road, but I do think that there is there is something to be learned. And I mean, I guess some of the people who've come out of those those situations are some of the people who stand the best chance of helping to get others out as well and rehabilitate them and be able to speak to their experiences directly. So if they can do some of that work, um, I think there's a real point to embracing them and, and trying to help them to do that. Mm. Um, but it, yeah. Yeah. yeah you, 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 I think the, um, the, the thing for me is that what I've noticed over the years is that lots of people who are part of, say, extreme or violent nationalist groups or what have you, there are so many of them. They're quite apolitical at the core and their motivations were more often than not social. And, and actually that ends up being the main thing, retaining them. So for many people, organised racism becomes their 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 social network, their birthday parties, their, you know, their, their demagogue figures are all within that world. The fear of, of being rejected by absolutely everyone around them is what they have to risk in terms of leaving. And it's usually that, that kind of social network first approach that mm. keeps people from leaving those networks. And then conversely, mm. I found that what lots of people who leave, say, far-right groups tend to first try and do is they try to find a new leader 
in say mm-hmm. some equivalent left circle and sometimes mm-hmm. I've I'm not the guy you know because I just do the the, the content that I do and look into the subjects that I do, but I have found over the past several years of anti-fascist stuff that sometimes people have um, uh, uh, elected me to be that guy. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know, so they're, they're shifting over their intent. There's you your know, cult right there. Okay, yes, all right, we'll do that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Remember, the aim here is to ultimately be featured on an app of your pod. Great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, yeah, that's exactly that's such the same dynamic because often with with cults, um, people think it's not a cult if it's not kind of moving someone to a commune and really isolating them from society. But actually, a lot of isolating someone from society is is creating the group as your only social network um, psychologically. So so the the blockage to leaving is exactly as you say for these people is losing your entire network and. Mm. Like a lot of the times, you know, people who have had family or friends um, join a cult ha- ha- want me to tell them how how do I get them out, and there's no easy answer to that at all. And the only advice that I've ever come across that seems anything worthwhile is that all you can do is let them know continually that you're there for them and you love them, and no matter what, you're going to be there for them. So that when they come to that realization themselves, they have somewhere to go. So that suggests to me that if we're not providing uh, a welcoming and, I mean, I don't want to say non-judgmental because there should be some judgment, but like a place for these people to go afterwards, then, you know, they're going to stay. This is a very similar thing to what I talked to people about in terms of, you know, what do you do with your friend who's becoming newly red-pilled? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a strong argument or, you know, becoming indoctrinated into QAnon. There's there's different approaches. But, you know, I think most people agree that actually you can arguably do uh, not much ranging through to fuck all. Mm-hmm. And, and But you can at least, there's one argument for saying that all you can do is uh, show them that you care, like you said, with cults and to say to them, that there's a space to talk to you, that you don't agree, but that there's a space to talk to you once they come back. Because, how, you know, how can you sit there investing all your time in challenging someone's worldview or do you then simply become the next person out of a thousand to tell them that they're wrong, therefore, you know, just causing them to retreat further into their views? Or will you just be the person that says, you know what, after you're done uh, and here is a space for you to come back to and talk to me? Yeah, exactly right. And they've got so many things that are already keeping them there that another thing that would keep them there is knowing that they don't have anywhere else to go. So why add that reason to their plate? It's a tough thing, isn't it? It's a tough thing. And again, as you pointed out earlier, this is one of the things that makes it, you know, I'm interested in exploring the commonalities between mm. the, the people who become, you know, strong adherents between you and I, but, you know, what we look into. But, yeah, as you've said, you know, it's you understand why the world at large might, or, or why people won't want to accept someone back who's been part of a, 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 a nationalist group that espoused you know, hateful or even genocidal views towards mm-hmm. certain groups. You know, why should why should why should uh, um, you know why should someone accept someone back after they've essentially espoused ideas that that would culminate in their death? It's it's yeah it's it's so it is it's really tricky, but it is uh, uh, I, like I definitely do come down on the side that we need to offer an alternative, and as as progressives, it's it is part of our job to do so, and it it can be 
bloody hard and I can understand why people have trouble yeah. with it. I, it happens to, to me all the time. I mean, you know, I've got family at the moment who are falling to a bunch of conspiracy theories and I just can't even, I can't engage at all. It's just too much for me when it's too close to home. But can I ask, I want to raise this before we move on to Kenja Beach uh, sorry, the Kenja communication thing. This is one of the things that caused me to originally think. Just, I think the first time I thought, oh, I'm, I really, really want to speak to Sarah was <laughs> when I was hearing about the Kenja communication uh, recreation that you talked about. Can you uh, recall that that incident? So Kenja communication sure. is a cult and they used to do a recreation on the 26th of January. Can you recall that? Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, they do like a recreation of um, the kind of the Captain Cook landing thing and they have this boat in this harbour. I can't even remember where it is and they all get dressed up and do like a, a LARP for Australia Day. It's, yeah. And they, they, I think Australia Day was also maybe when they took out their full page ads in the Fairfax Press in defense of um, Ken Dyer, who started the cult with Jan Hamilton. Kenja, Ken and Jan, Kenja. Kenja, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so Ken Dyer was, um, ended up uh, um, uh, dying by suicide after uh, he was, it was almost inevitable that he was going to get dragged through the courts for issues related to sexual abuse and pedophilia, if I recall correctly. Is that right? That's right. And I believe Jan mm. Hamilton has just um, had uh, another appeal denied around, now I can't remember what her court case was, but some news came through recently about um, some more court activity that she's she's lost on that front. Are they still doing the recreation of the landing? Do you know? Because I know I'm Ken's not, not around sure. anymore. I, yeah, I would, ha- I would have to look that up. I haven't... I haven't um, come across it anywhere the news hasn't been covering it so maybe they've given it up I think that their numbers have thinned out quite a bit and they got a little bit of coverage recently because of there was a um the tv show uh Kate Blanchett played the Jan Hamilton character they called the cult a different name but it was um Cornelia Rao and her experience she was the German I mean, she was a back. Uh, she was an Australian, but her she ended up speaking German and ending up in a refugee facility. Um, right. Yes, I recall some of this. Yep. Now, what was that? So, but yeah, she like the suggestion is that joining and then being rejected from Kenja was something that caused a, a mental snap in her, and that's how she ended up in that facility. And it got yeah. to be big news because she was an Australian citizen who was like locked up in this place for for ages. So, if I find that this beach recreation is still occurring, I commit to you to going there one day and filming it. I will do that and I will, I don't know if that's of any use to you whatsoever, but I, because I deeply want to, I was just thinking this is amazing. It's, you know, it's a, it's a real overlap between sort of like nationalist fervour and, and, and cult gestures. Is there any, have you seen any other expressly political interventions or stunts by Aussie cults like that that you've uncovered over time? Um. I'm not, I can't, like none are coming to mind with Australian groups, but uh, what have I, like political activities. I mean, the the Raelians often do these um, topless demonstrations. I don't know if you know about these guys. They're like a UFO cult. Who I believe- have a couple of Raelians who comment on my page sometimes. 
Ah, right. Well, I think we can. <laughs> they always have the Raelian as a surname on their Facebook profile. Yeah, right. Interesting. Well, because I think that they are broadly um, kind of leftish, I would say. Like they they want world yeah. peace. They want world peace so that we can build a monument so that the aliens can come down and get us. I think it has to happen by 2035. So it'll be an interesting uh, decade well, and a half. Yeah, we yeah. better get onto it. Um but their topless demonstrations are about uh, that women, if men have the right to walk around topless, then women should also, which, you know, fair point. Well, and the other the other campaign they have is uh, rehabilitating the swastika. That's slightly more complicated. Oh, yeah, okay. Rehabilitating it, but why? Do they have this ambient uh, uh, sort of uh, Hindu-adjacent ideas? Or Yeah, they've got like the Star of David with the swastika inside it is their symbol. I think that they would just have the – well, because the swastika, it was originally uh, some other religious – what was the name of the? I can't remember the name of the symbol. It's a Hindu thing, and, and then there's a there's a so it's Hindu historically, and then um, there was a, a German secret society called the Thule Society that originally uh, took the swastika from Thule because they were sort of like a mystic fascist thing. I know all about this because of my upcoming show. And then <laughs> they they took the swastika and then they started using it. This is like in the 1910s and 20s in Germany. And then they made a little political party offshoot called the German Workers' Party, which a bloke mm. called Adolf Hitler joined and took over within a year. Okay. And so that's the the, 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 the the transition. It started out as a, you know, as a mystic fascist thing before becoming a political fascist thing. You know, yeah, right. That's, how it got co-opted, yeah. Well, that, yeah, and the, so the Raelians, I think that they hired, you know, planes and kind of um, had those, uh, what are those, you know, those long kind of um, tails that follow a, a biplane and it had like the swastika on it and some sort of website and, you know, that went over pretty well when people saw the swastika just flying overhead. Yeah, people would have been delighted to see that. Oh, yeah, yeah really. It really um, helped us towards the world peace that they're aiming for. Yes, yes, that's kind of unifying gestures (laughs) we all need to bring us together flying the swastika in public spaces. Um, Sarah, I I will ask you one more question I've really been burning to ask you, which is that in in my world, uh, in our world, and anti-fascism, we talk about physically trying to intervene in public fascist organising spaces. You know, a very important part of grassroots fascism is that they get together and they do rallies. Um, the grassroots groups need to show up in public um, and need the media attention in order to announce to the world that we are here, a narrative is continuing, our numbers are increasing. That's a historically really important part. And, and so anti-fascists trying to get them, they try to break it up. Now, when I listen, the more I hear horrible stories about cults that I hear through your podcast, the more I think to myself, why aren't people breaking them up? Now, I know it's different because they hide from public view. We might not even know about them. But if we were to, I mean, do you think that that idea has merit? Is there anyone who does things like that? Are there people who try to stop cults whilst they're doing their cultish things? I like I hear about the odd ex-member who'll try and go to a meeting or something of the the cult that they were in and try and face down with people or you know things like that and basically I don't think it ever does anything I don't think it works and yeah. it's I yeah I would love it if it did um 
it's, you know, how do we, yeah, how do we stop these groups? What are the best tactics towards a future where people aren't having years of their lives stolen from them by massive indoctrination? I mean, I think it's it's going to be education and it's going to be better legal protections for coercive control and, you know, things outside of um, – like most of these leaders, they only go down if it's like a sexual abuse charge. That's pretty much it. Or they do some sort of real financial scam and that we need to be able to recognize that there's more crime going on here. That's not recognized as a crime. I think it's a huge problem. Um, I mean, I wish, yeah, I wish you could storm in and 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 do an action and and show <laughs> show them the errors of their ways. But there's just like there's such indoctrination. I suppose with with that anti-fascism work, it's about like showing solidarity with those who are under threat by fascism as well, right? Mm, yes. And so maybe there's an overlap where there are cults that are you know, becoming um, a threat to wider society. But, and it's also about stopping more people from joining by demonstrating Yes, it is, absolutely. You know what I would say, Sarah, is that over the past couple of years in, in Australia, I wrote an article about this earlier this year actually, and my, my opinion is that by far the most important form of anti-fascism has not been crashing rallies, doing counter rallies, physical confrontation. It has by far been research and exposure anyway. I think without research and exposure, uh, Fraser Ranning, ex-Senator Fraser Ranning, would have been far more popular than he has been. Certain far-right groups would have been um, allowed to infiltrate political parties. Uh, Far-right groups would have uh, gained much more traction unnoticed than they have done. And, And I can list a series of goals that have all being kicked just by the right people researching and then exposing so that other people know. And I think that that's precisely what you do, you know. So I I, I think probably just the work of, of undertaking to expose what's happening with the goal, whether it be active or expired, and therefore in the process of letting people know, is probably one of the most powerful things that, that, that could be done to to let people know um, or to, to limit the exposure or the, the further reach of these cults. That, I mean, that mean that means a lot. But, yeah, that is, I mean, that's what I would really hope to be able to do. And I think that that's why it's also maybe it's unlikely that you're going to get someone out, but if you can stop someone from getting in, then that's just as important. And I think, yeah, helping people recognise the red flags and how many of these groups are out there. But, you know, I, I do often come back to the, the many people who are born into these groups who never made the choice to join and who, you know, telling the red flags, it's not going to help them because they never they never joined. They were brought up in them and something's something's got to be done about that. Sarah, I, I, I look forward to being profiled on a future episode <laughs> of your podcast once my, my cult really takes off. Can you tell me, do you, can you plug, please plug the podcast and your presence online for us? Oh, I mean, it, it's Let's Talk About Sects. The website is ltaspod.com and that's if you want to drop me a line about a group that should be covered that I might not have heard of. I probably haven't. The, the spreadsheet grows, but it grows every day. Well, actually, actually, before I started recording, we were having a quick chat and we were suggesting that um, we need to issue a public memorandum to 
uh, to all prospective budding cults if they could just hold off on the culting for a little while until Sarah's caught up um, and then <laughs> recommence culting. And I, 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 I promise to hold off on my cult plans until you, you've got time for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm much obliged to you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah Steele. Thanks a lot.